So welcome back to another episode of Everything Aviation Podcast. This week, we got a really, really cool guest for you. This guest is a social media sensation and is a virgin captain on the A350. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Chris Pohl, or better known as Captain Chris. Chris, how are we? G'day, Mikey. How you doing, mate? Not bad now, and yourself? Fantastic. I mean, over at Heathrow Airport, waiting for a flight down to Lagos tonight. So just spending my time chatting to you and everybody watching there. And um, yeah, it's the best way to get rid of time. You know, these days we can't go anywhere, can we? No. I've taken a run around the airport to get my exercise in. But apart from that, visiting Marks and Spencers is not much to do at Heathrow Airport. <laughs> Who thought now in 2021 that would be the only thing you can do? Oh, yeah. No, it, a, a trip over to Terminal 5 to Marks and Spencers is a big day out for me. <laughs> I love it. Absolutely love it. And I'm a bit jealous of yourself actually still still flying and still Exactly. And I, I make tonight. I make light of it, but I'm one of the lucky guys, you know, as, as you know yourself, Mikey. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, there's a lot of us still furloughed at the moment and everything. So it, it is quite refreshing to talk to someone who, who's still flying and someone who's enthusiastic as yourself. But there's one thing I gotta know, Chris, is where where did your interest in aviation start? Well, you've obviously picked up the accent already, although even though I left Australia about 30 years ago, I still got that little twang there. Um, it's so funny, every time I go back to Australia, people um, assume I'm British because I've got this British accent when I go back there. And, and my dad even calls me a pom, even though he was he was born in Liverpool, but he, right. he immigrated out there when he was, yeah, he immigrated out to Australia when he was 15 years old with his with uh, my grandparents. But then I decided I was going to come back to England because of my, my career brought me here. But uh, I started off in Australia. Uh, my father was always interested in flying. Um, and he was a builder in his early 20s, and he was saving up to become a pilot. But when, uh, when he was about 24 years old, a three-inch nail went into his right eye and blinded him. And that, oh. so yeah, you, you winced, didn't you? Yeah. I, I still do that now. <laughs> but uh, from, from the age of 24, he's been blind in one eye, and that's sort of like throughout the um, flying career. So I didn't realize this, but as a, as a young boy, as the eldest of three boys, my, my dad was always taking me to the airport, and we always looked at airplanes, and every time somebody flew in from interstate, we'd go to the airport a few hours early to pick them up to go and watch the airplane take off and land. And every, every Christmas, every um, birthday, it was books on airplanes, model airplanes, and before um, radio control models came out, we had, we had these string, these control line models. It was like two strings oh, to control ones. the yeah, airplane. Yeah. You used to go around and you get, until you get dizzy and crash the thing. <laughs> But I remember my, my dad and my uncle Fred smashing so many of them up before I even got my hands on them. But um, I think it was that sort of um, start, this, this influence of having aviation from my father influenced to me to, uh, to get into flying. So uh, um, it was then, I've told the story a few times, but um, when I was 12 years of age, we went on the first time I've ever been on an airplane. Well, I didn't come from a wealthy family. I mean, everybody thinks builders these days are rich guys, but in those days in Australia, my dad was a builder. He had four kids. I was the eldest. We went on a family holiday to visit my Uncle Fred up in Queensland. And we went to the airport early and uh, we checked in for the flight. I was so excited because I'd never been on an airplane. I was 12 years old. And as we walked up the stairs um, of a 727, a, a, a Australian Airways, TAA 727, my father pushed me in front of him, this shy 12-year-old boy, and uh, said to the stewardess, oh, my son would like to see the cockpit. Obviously, he wanted to see the cockpit, but he, he pushed me in front and said, my, my boy would like to see the cockpit. Next thing I know, I'm in the cockpit of a 727, which is quite small. And the captain turned around and said, oh, do you want to stay here for takeoff, Christopher? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Wow. And my dad helped, helped the engineer. They strapped me in the seat. And I remember just watching them all set up and push back and we taxied out. And as we belted down that runway, at like the fastest I've ever seen in beam in my life. And, and I just watched these three guys you know, flying this airplane as we rotated into the sky. At that moment, I thought, wow, 
this is really, I, this is what I want to do. I want to do this. Whatever it takes to do this, this is what I want to do. And I cannot remember any more of the holiday after that point there because all I had in my mind was that moment of, of taking off in the 727 in the cockpit. And I remember the, the captain turned around to me as we got airborne and he said, so what do you think of that, Christopher? And I went, <laughs> I, was, I was just stunned. I was like this 12-year-old nervous, shy boy with my mouth open. And I remember quite clearly I said to him, is this your job? And he said, yeah, I'm a pilot. And he went, do you get paid for it? And they all laughed. I said, do you get paid for this? He went, yeah, of course we do. I went, wow, can I do this? And he gave me the same thing that I say to all young kids. I said, yeah, you do well at school. You listen to your parents, you know, maths, physics, you know, do all your subjects well, and you too can be a pilot. And, and I, I did exactly what he said. I did, I did well at school. I, my, um, my marks weren't great, but they were good enough. And then I, I, I basically from that age, 12 years of age, I started working and paying for my flying lessons and wow. saving up for them. Wow, wow, wow. So you, you actually started training at the age of 12? No, no, no. Sorry. I knew that it was expensive. My parents didn't have any money. And so I, I had three paper rounds, um, one before school, two after school. I worked on the, at the supermarket on weekends, pushing trolleys and stacking up the dairy case with the cheese and the milk and things like that. And then on some weekends and public holidays and school holidays, I used to work with my dad and uncles working on building sites, earning money. And I'd saved up, um, it was a huge amount of money then, $15,000 by my 18th birthday. Um, which wow. was the equivalent today of £60,000. That's for a young boy. Yeah, 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 I worked hard. And I'd saved up wow. all that money. And so uh, I was able to pay for half of my ATPL course. And I, I had a my rich uncle who only died last year, my uncle Freddie, um, he stomped up the other half as a 0% a loan, which I paid him off in five years. Wow. That's real proof of how, where, where hard work can get you and determination. As if, well. if you want to get something, you can do it. Nothing, nothing worthwhile is ever easy, and it shouldn't be. No, no, because if it was easy, and I remember my dad always saying this to me as well, he said, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. And yeah. that, that's the thing is, is if, if you really want it and you could go out and grab it with both hands because it is doable, yeah, you just got to put the work in. You got to put the work. In. It's like anything, no matter what you want to do. And I was lucky. I was very lucky um, to be at 12 years of age and knowing what I wanted to do. I didn't know up to that age, but at 12, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And I've got so many friends of mine who are at my age and they still don't know what they want to do. That's, oh, I've got loads of people in school and so on. And then when I was coming through, um, like you're 18 year old, years old, you're you're being told, 17 and 18 years old, you're, you're being told to make, like, choices. Life decisions. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're, I, I didn't even know what I wanted for my dinner that evening, never mind what I wanted to do when I left school. So <laughs> yeah, it's really, really good and refreshing to hear someone like yourself who at that tender age of 12 was was read, ready and willing to do whatever they could to, to get where they wanted in life. But But it's a boring story as well, Mikey, because that's all I've ever done. <laughs> so, there's nothing wrong with that <laughs> I've, I've stuck with it everybody goes oh well done well done to you but i've done nothing else that's it you know people do all sorts of amazing things i'm an airline captain yeah you know, I've, I've, you know i wanted to be an airline captain since i was 12 and i've been doing that for many many years but um oh, i know i can do other things i've learned how social media works that's why you're talking to me now there we go there we go we, we, we'll come on to that because i think that's going to be quite an interesting story but uh going going back to to what you were saying about that's all that's all you've done if that's all you've wanted to do and you're happy to do it if it's broke then why fix it yeah, absolutely. Um, so when, when you were starting training, what, what was it that you started training on? Like what kind of aircraft and how was your training? Um, so I learned to fly in a place called Cessnock, New South Wales, um, just north of Sydney, near Newcastle, Newcastle on the coast in Australia. And uh, I flew a, a PA-28, a Piper Warrior. I mean, it's a classic aeroplane. It was, um, <clears throat> what I say to people now, they're learning Piper Warriors. I think the Piper Warrior was an old aeroplane when I flew it in 1981. 
I mean, they haven't gotten any newer. So um, that was an old airplane then. It's still a, a very old airplane now, but it's a, still a great training aircraft. Yeah, Piper PA-28s, I flew Cessna 152s, 172s, 182s. Wow. Um, I flew all the Cessnas and all the Pipers. I think I've in my logbook, I've flown just about every single Piper or Cessna that was ever made or model that was ever made, um, plus Beechcraft, um, Moonies. I, I did two and a half thousand hours of flying light aircraft in Australia, flying all over Australia, wow. doing um, uh, uh, yeah, so many different jobs. I did Beach and Bay reports, live Beach Bay reports on the radio. I used to fly Channel 9 News around in a, an Aztec. I used to do target towing from the Navy in a Navajo. Um, I would um, fly dead people around. That's an interesting story. <clears throat> when I write a book one day, I used to fly dead people around in the back of a Beechcraft Baron that had the seats removed in the back. And it was repatriating bodies for a funeral director. And that was one of my jobs. Because when I was a 19-year-old commercial pilot with a really dodgy moustache and looked like Freddie Mercury, nobody really wanted to fly with me because I just looked too young. So you got but, people um, who didn't yeah, have a choice. Dead people didn't mind. Yeah. <laughs> they had no choice. Imagine, like, when you sit down in a careers office and everyone says, oh, you come a commercial pilot, you go into the airline industry. Nobody tells you about these other things that you could do. Like you mentioned, target training for the Navy. Surely yeah. that must have been an interesting one because there's, there's things trying to effectively shoot you down. Well, they were actually shooting at us with the live ammunition. We used to fly this Navajo. There was an Aztec and a Navajo. And um, there was a winch operator, old George, and he used to be in the back. He used to winch out the target. So we fly up maybe 3,000 feet and uh, the winch operator, George, would winch out the target. The target looked like a, a windsock but turned around the other way. And the windsock, bright orange, would hang out the back of the airplane. And it was 4,000 feet of cable. So the, 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 the target would be 4,000 feet behind the aircraft and about 1,000 feet below the aircraft. And we'd fly over the gunnery range or the actual ships out at sea. And uh, once we were overhead, then they would start firing at the target. But um, the only problem with that is the target was bright orange and some bright spark thought it would be a good idea to paint the under the fuselage bright orange as well so that oh, they could differentiate no. them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they it's did actually shoot us with live, live ammunition and you used to feel the, the shockwaves in the air. Wow. You do anything for twin hours, anything to fly a twin engine airplane. Yeah, I can imagine. I've spoken to a few people now who are saying about hour building and stuff and doing the twin engine and stuff. And they had to, uh, yeah, to do anything they can really for the for the hours. And uh, I spoke to uh, Kerry McCauley not so long ago, who was um, part of Discovery's uh, Dangerous dangerous Flights. He was a star in that. Yeah. And he was saying the same. He said building the twin hours was the hardest thing. So they went out and bought a twin engine aircraft to, um, to go and do it in. Oh, yeah. No, when you pay for your hours, you fly the cheapest, smallest, slowest airplane you can get because it's all about the hours. Right. When somebody's paying you to fly a twin engine airplane, you'll do anything. Yeah. You know, like I said, you'll, you'll even get shot at to do it or fly dead people around to do it. <laughs> so, Chris, what was your actual first job with an ATPL in your back pocket? An ATPL, I think my very first job was doing joy flights up at a place called Lake Eildon in a Cessna 172. Oh. I used to sit at the side of the road in a caravan. It was stinking hot one summer and we just had a big sign saying joy flights and i used to take people for for flights over the lake the local lake there wow. just to try and get an hour here and an hour there and like i said i was an 18 year old um cpl and i didn't have any hours nobody would employ me so i set this up with the local guy that owned the airplane and i hired his airplane from him sat up sat on the side of the road at a caravan at a, like a local beauty spot and just took people for flights wow that's amazing yeah. what a story all summer yeah, it was just good fun. to start out. Yeah, yeah, that's brilliant. So, then, where, how did you start getting into 
You mentioned you had a CPL. When did you start looking at getting your, your ATPL or did you have a frozen ATPL? Well, I had, I had a frozen ATPL. So I had all the subjects and I had I just needed the 1500 hours. And I remember it was like, it's not a big deal when you get it. It's a funny thing. You just like, once you get to your 1500 hours, you just go into the CA and they give you an ATPL and think, am I supposed to crack a bottle of champagne open now because I'm now an ATPL pilot? But you, you've effectively been working as a commercial pilot for the last you know, year or so anyway. Yeah. So it's just, it's, just a, it's just another step but then you need to apply to the airlines and things like that. The, the only problem is in Australia, where I, where I started my flying, there was only three airlines in Australia. There was Ansett Airlines, TAA, Trans-Australian Airways, and Qantas. And um, all those three airlines only recruited every now and then, just like the, the UK airlines and every airline around the world, you know, they're, they're cycles. And when I was looking to apply, they weren't taking pilots. And they also required two and a half thousand to 3000 flying hours to, to get an interview. Just for an interview, because there was a lot of pilots around at that time. It's just timing. Aviation is all about timing. I've been unlucky and I've been lucky. You know, and, yeah. and, I've, and it's just, it hasn't changed. It's exactly the same today. Today, people say, oh, that's the most unlucky aviation's ever been. I, I disagree on that. You know, it's just another time that aviation has been unlucky. And, and people who are you know, learning to fly right now, I think they're actually going to be very lucky in the future. There will be opportunities, but we can talk about that later. Yeah. But um, back to... Um, yeah, there was only three airlines in Australia, and I managed to get an interview with Antset and Qantas, I think, in the same week. Um, it just came up well, out of nowhere. And um, Antset offered me F-27. You remember the old F-27s? Yeah. Yeah, direct, direct entry onto an F-27, flying up and down the, um, the Queensland coast, flying out to all the, the, the tourist resorts um, along from Brisbane up to, to Cairns. And that sounded really interesting. And Qantas offered me um, direct entry, 747, second officer. However, I spoke to a couple of mates who were already in Qantas, and it was, it was at that time, it was looking at 12 years second officer before a first officer upgrade. Oh, wow. Okay. When, you, when you're nine, when you're, how old was I, 22, 23 years old, 12 years seems like forever. You think, yeah. oh my God, I'll be, I'll be in, well into my 30s before I even get to touch the controls. So I turned down Qantas for, for the F-27 with ANSET. And within two years with Antset, I was flying an A320 as launch customer in 1989. Oh, wow. And that was interesting as well, because nobody else had A320s except, I think, Air France, BA and Lufthansa in the whole planet in 1989. Brilliant. And what exactly is a second officer? Because it's not something that we, we really hear about over here. Um, a, sec a second officer is basically a cruise pilot. So it's a way of, it's two, two ways, it's a way of, paying pilots less money and it's also a way of not having to worry about everybody being current on the aircraft that's probably the main reason is um long-haul pilots need to do a takeoff and landing um every sorry three takeoffs and landings every 90 days and a takeoff and landing it was at that stage every 30 days now it's 45 days and so to try and do that on a long-haul operation is quite difficult when you've got a, a an augmented crew of say four pilots yeah let's say you had one captain and three first officers to keep all those three first officers current doing their three takeoffs and landings every 90 days. It just makes it more difficult. So for rostering, if you had one captain, two first officers, maybe a second officer, the second officer doesn't actually fly the airplane. He just sits here in the cruise and, and operates the airplane. He's a fully qualified ATPL pilot, but he doesn't do the takeoffs and landings. They only get takeoffs and landings in the simulator. And, I, and when, when I was like 22 years of age, I thought, oh, I don't want to do that for 12 years. Yeah, I mean, a lot definitely. of guys did. It was just timing. At that time, that's how long it took to become a first officer. And wow. I'm sure many years later it changed. It might have only been two years or three years or whatever, but that's how airlines run. And at that time it was 12 years before you become a first officer. So it wasn't appealing. 
because usually nowadays you'll hear people like first officers taking that same amount of time to become captains. So I can imagine if you're sat there waiting for an upgrade, which is effectively to to first officer, is is a bit uh, it's a bit strange, really. And then it's even longer to become a captain in a in a big airline like um, Qantas. And there's an expression in aviation you might have heard it called "dead man's shoes." Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's it's like that. You have to wait for somebody to retire before you can then move into their place. And the problem that some of the some of the pilots in my era have had is that the retirement age for airlines was always 55 when I started flying. It was always 55. Every airline in the world retired at 55. And as I've become older, it then went to 60, and then it became 65. So all those first officers that were hoping for an upgrade during those periods have thought, oh, now I've got to wait another five years before the old bloke sitting next to me retires. So um, that's yeah, that's how aviation works. It's, you know, good luck, bad luck, and and. You know, it depends where you are at the right time, at the right place, with the right type rating. And it is there is a lot of luck involved as well. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Like you said, it's, it's all about being in the right place, right time with, with the luck. Uh, it's not something you can really wing and hope for the best for. Um, no, no, no. You, you've got to prepare yourself to be the best candidate available for that job. But, you know, that's not always that easy. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So, Chris, you you touched on the airline industry there. I, you, you were offered a... Flying a flying scholarship with the Australian Air Force, flying F one elevens. What wasn't so much a scholarship? Yeah, it was training with the Royal Australian Air Force. So about the same time I was eighteen years of age, I started a private pilot's license just to to see if I really wanted to do a whole career in this aviation. I had the money for it. I went along to a, a recruitment um, drive for the Royal Australian Air Force. Um, they looked at my marks at school. They looked at the fact that I was flying, and obviously I had the aptitude because I was so excitable being an 18 year old and wanting to fly airplanes. And they took me through the whole procedures. They did the um, aptitude tests, they did um, psychometric tests, they did all the tests. And then they sat me down and they said, um, you know, if you were successful and obviously not everybody's successful, but if you went through our program, you could end up flying one of our F-111s. That was the aircraft in those wow. days of fast jet. The F-111, you'd be based at Tyndall, you'd be flying this aircraft. And like I said, I, they didn't offer me that, but they suggested that you know, if you join the Air Force and if you move up the ranks, you could end up being a fast jet pilot. And I remember going to visit, because um, I had the, all the details and it wasn't so much a contract, it was like the details of if you want to sign up, here's, here's what you need to sign up. And I was lucky that one of my school friends, dads, was a 727 captain with that same airline, Trans-Australian Airlines. And I remember asking my friend Cameron, can I come around and see your dad sometime? I just want to ask him for some advice because my dad was a builder, so he didn't know what, what route I should take. Obviously, he's going, go for the Air Force, go for the Air Force. And I was quite keen on the Air Force as well. Um, but my um, friend's father, Cam um, Cameron's father, Len, um, he he invited me around. We sat in his garden. And he offered me a beer and he sat there and he's like, got his, got his suntan, his Ray-Ban sunglasses on. He's sitting in his massive big two-bedroom house. It was a Porsche 911 in the garage. I remember oh, that. Wow. <laughs> there, was a there was a yacht out the back. He had his own lake. Right, a yacht out the back. I mean, airline pilots used to earn big money in these days. He had a yacht out the back and a speedboat and a jet ski. And I'd never seen a jet ski in my life. Wow. There was a jet ski parked up on his own, own pontoon. And uh, I remember looking at him. I said, oh, Captain Wegman, call me Len. Oh, um, yeah, Captain Wegman, call me Len. Look, I've got, this, I've got this offer, sort of like an offer with the Air Force. And yet I've also been offered a position with Antset and Qantas. I'll, I'll probably take the Antset job because I want to be a first officer. But, but again, if the Air Force are going to pay for my training, should I go down that route? And he looked at the contract, put his glasses on, he read it through and he went, you see what they're paying you there, son? I went, yeah, 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 that's, that sounds, that's a lot of money. He said, it's a third of what our first officers start on. I went, oh, okay. And he said, and also have a look on the small print here. You've got to sign up for 10 years. I went, yeah. He said, so it'll be 28 before you can apply to the airlines. I went, well, that's still okay, isn't it? 
He said, yeah, and then you'll start off as a first officer. And 10 years after that, you'll be a, a captain, you'll be a captain in your forties. And you know, that my dad wasn't even 40 by this stage. And I went, oh, really? And it was like, the way he put it was basically, if you want to be an airline pilot, be an airline pilot. Don't go to the Air Force to be an airline pilot. Go to the Air Force to have an amazing adventure and fly some amazing jets and, and see the world. You know, they're, they're two different careers. Um, I know a lot of um, Air Force pilots leave the Air Force and end up in the airlines. But he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be sitting where you are now. And he said, OK, take the ANSET job. And that was it. So that my, my career with the Air Force was very, very short. How did you, because you had a spin with the, the Royal Navy and the Hawks as well. How, how did you manage to swing that? Was that done through the Australian Air Force? No, no, no. That was in, that was in Coldrow's Naval Base in the UK. And that was when I was flying for Ansett Airline. Uh, sorry, with Virgin Atlantic. So I joined Virgin at the start of 1994. And uh, for once in my career, after seven um, times being unemployed, I arrived in Virgin Atlantic. And within a year, I, was, um, I went from the right seat to the left seat. So I was a left-hand seat, four-engine jet captain at 30 years of age, flying for Virgin Atlantic, flying to Hong Kong and Tokyo, and we went all around the world. It was an amazing experience. And in 1995, we were looking to do some more recruitment. And so what happened is um, obviously the Air Force and the Navy were keen to get their pilots um, getting interviews with Virgin Atlantic. So they were offering um, like a few days at their different bases. There was um, um, Valley and Coldrose, and they were basically the Air Force and the Navy were, were offering what they called guesting. And so I I would be a guest at Coldrose. I get to fly one of their Hawks. I, I went up actually three days and flying the Hawk and a, I flew a Sea King and a Gazelle helicopter as well. And that was an absolutely amazing experience. And in turn, we had to take a Navy pilot out to Hong Kong with him, with us and get him drunk. So that was an easy thing to do. <laughs> I love it. That's so, so yeah. cool. I, I, I did wonder because I know you were had the, the uh, F-111 shot and I wasn't sure whether they sent you to the UK to, to, to have a spin. In no, 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 no. But the F-111 off, not, it wasn't an offer. The F-111 opportunity came at my 18th birthday when I was going to join, I was either, not, 18 and a half, I was either going to go to the Air Force or go to um, ANSET and I chose the ANSET career because of Len Wegman, the captain who, who said, do you want to be an airline pilot or do you want to be an Air Force pilot? It's up to you. You can't do both. And I went, you can. He went, you can. But if you want, and, and I remember he said, but if you want to be sitting here with a yacht and a Porsche 911 in the driveway, go the airline route and that's that's how he that's how he sold it to me wow wow uh, so you you mentioned you said you you've, you've been un unemployed seven times what's what's happened since you you got your first um kind of air, airline airline slot well the first airline slot like i said was ansett airlines and i was flying the f-27 up and down the coast of queensland um, and then in 1989 i was on a course for the a320 this brand new um airbus from um from france and uh, I was, I'd done the course on that. I'd done some training sectors. And in August, 1989, it's very famous, well before you were born, there was a major um, airline industrial dispute where the unions took the, um, well, basically it was a, between the unions and the government and 1,647 Australian airline pilots all resigned en masse. I was one of them. Oh, I was wow. only 24 and a half years old. And uh, we all resigned and the airlines both shut down, TA and Qantas, sorry, TA and ANSET shut down, not Qantas, Qantas was an international airline, they had a different union, but the, um, the both domestic airlines shut down, aeroplanes didn't fly for six months, and during that six-month period, myself and my girlfriend went off surfing in Hawaii, we went uh, snowboarding in Colorado, and then during this period, we realized that the job wasn't going to come back, that I wasn't going to be offered the job back, and um, they were bringing in pilots from America, they were bringing in pilots from Britain, and... Um, Basically, we were not blacklisted, but they didn't want us back. So I went to a place called England, 
You might have heard of it. I'd never been there yeah, before. Yeah. Never that, been there. that little tiny yeah, place, yeah. <laughs> yeah, went to this little island um, from, I remember we were running out of money and we took a continental flight across to Gatwick Airport, landed at Gatwick Airport, it was in the winter, I think it was about January or February, found a, a little B&B um, in Hawley. And the next day, my, my girlfriend, now wife, got a job in a, in a pub in Hawley pulling beers. And I got a job airside at Gatwick Airport cleaning airplanes within wow. one day of being in the country. There was no security checks in those days, obviously. So I, I, I basically worked airside at Gatwick Airport while I worked out how I could convert my Australian ATPL with about 6,000 flying hours to a UK ATPL. I had to do all the exams again. I think they let me off from Moore's code, which is probably the only thing I didn't know. But they, um, I had to do all the exams again to qualify for a UK ATPL. And that took about three, three months. But by the time I got the, the flying training and the, um, the license actually back, uh, it was about five months. And then I managed to be very lucky. Again, lucky timing. I managed to get a job straight away with um, Air Europe. Wow. So, but that was, that was good luck, bad luck, because I, I, I got a job with Air Europe. I flew the Fokker 100. That was an amazing experience. But six months later, they went bust. All right, so okay. Good luck, bad luck. Yeah. Yeah. And also my, my girlfriend got a job with Air Europe as a flight attendant. So we, oh, both, okay. we, were, we were both unemployed again, living in Hawley. So it was like, it's aviation. Full circle. You know, good luck. Yeah. It's like, oh, here we are again. Let's go back to eating potatoes. You know? <laughs> it must have been quite a culture shock to come from surfing in Hawaii and snowboarding in Colorado to, to rocking up to Hawley and uh, getting well, we a job the aircraft. Yeah. Because all the time we were in like snow, uh, snowboarding or surfing, we were thinking, oh, we'll get back to Australia and everything will be okay and I'll get my job back. And no, it wasn't wasn't going to no. happen. No, that's so, a shame. Uh, yeah, we had to find an alternative. But do you know what? I keep saying this to people who are getting into the industry. You know, life is an adventure. And, and unless you take that adventure, you'll never know. You know, I get lots of young guys who, who write to me on Instagram and say, oh, I'm looking to go to this flying school here. And I'm not going to put down any flying schools. And I said, look, there's nothing more sad than a pilot who's you know, born in, let's say, Su Sussex, right? Grew up in Sussex, went to a flying school in Sussex, and then got a job at Gatwick Airport flying back and forth every day until he retires that's not an adventure yeah 100%. if you like flying that's that's good go flying that's amazing but i didn't even know what gatwick was i didn't even know the name gatwick before i arrived there on an airplane yeah. and yeah it's all part of the adventure now, oh, I, yeah, I flew to air lanka in sri lanka that was amazing flying around the maldives and around bangkok that was incredible wow. yeah, i lived in cyprus for two and a half years flying flying all around europe from cyprus wow. so life's an adventure you just got to go out and get it there's there's a lot of my colleagues are out of work now and it's difficult when you've got a family and kids and, and, and me, me, mouths to feed and, you know, car payments and mortgage payments and things like that. There are flying jobs out there, but they're not in places that you want to go. Yeah. You know, there's, yeah. Jobs, there's jobs in Korea. There's jobs in um, North, North Africa. They are there, there, but they're not where you want to go. I was the guy that said, Do you know what? I'll just go there. I'm, I'm not going to go there forever. I'll just go there and, and get the job just to keep the experience up. And that's the most important thing. Yeah. And, and again, aviation is the right place, right time with the right qualification. So if you've got hours and a type rating, that's how you get a job. They don't care right. about university degrees. It's just hours and a type rating. Can we employ this guy to fly our airplane? That's what they look for. Yeah, 100%. And my, my dad always said it as well. He said, you'll never regret the things that you did, but you'll always regret the things that you didn't do. So Absolutely. he said, any opportunity do you get offered, just, just grab it and go for it. He said, because God knows where it's going to bring you. Absolutely. Fantastic. Yeah. My, my daughter's in between um, high school and university and uh, she doesn't want a career working in a supermarket, but she's gone to do it because it's an experience. And yeah. She's working in a supermarket during the pandemic and she's loving it. Absolutely loving it. Brilliant. You know, she said brilliant. she wanted to take a year out and be a flight attendant, but that's not happening right now. 
but she's working in a supermarket every day and she absolutely loves it because it's being with people and it's having a responsibility. And it's a reason to get up in the morning. And yeah. that's difficult for so many people right now. Really difficult. You know, through no fault of their own, you know, they can't go to work. And that's, that's what's really sad. Yeah, 100%. I, I completely agree with you there. And being furloughed myself and all that, I, I can see it's, it's great still, very lucky to still have a, have a job and still be employed. Um, Absolutely. But it's that you're getting up every morning. There's only so much Netflix and FIFA that you can you can play yeah. and watch. And it's, <laughs> yeah, you're getting up just to sit on the couch and, and go back to bed in the evening time. But uh, so Yeah, and it's like every day blends from one into another, you know. What's the difference between Sunday and Wednesday? <laughs> Nothing really. There's a Y in it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So Chris, how long was it then when Air Europa went, went pop that, that you, or Air Europe went, went pop that, that you went to Virgin? Oh no, there's lots of things. So Air Europe went bust, that was in um, 1990. Um, I got a contract through Park Aviation to fly with KLN City Hopper based in um, in, Hol in Amsterdam Airport at Heimstede where I was living, um, flying the Fokker 100 for them. I got another short-term contract with uh, Swiss Air flying the Fokker 100 um, based in Zurich. And while I was there, I heard about a job with Euro Cypria flying the A320 based in Larnaca in Cyprus. So having 320 experience and an ATPL, the UK ATPL, again, being in the right place at the right time, I was able to get uh, one of, I think it was only 30 jobs with that airline. So I went down to Larnaca and I lived there for three, two and a half years, living on the beach in a penthouse apartment and flying from Larnaca and Paphos up to places as far as Bergen and Stavanger in Norway. Um, all over the UK, all over Germany, all over France, bringing tourists from Europe down to Cyprus for the Cypriot government. Euro Cypriot was a, wow. a part of Cyprus Airways. So I did that for two and a half years, but then that contract ended and I was all the time applying for Virgin Land. This is a funny thing. I applied for Virgin in 1990, but I was told, no, 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 you don't have the right experience because all you've got is glass cockpit time and we fly old jumbo jets and that's not the right experience. I went, okay. And it was only when I was then on another contract in um, Sri Lanka flying for... Um, Air Lanka, which is now Sri Lankan Airlines, but I was flying for Air Lanka on a 320 based at uh, Nagumbo, sorry, at Katanaika Airport. I was living in Nagumbo, Colombo Airport. And uh, while I was there, I picked up a, a copy of Flight International. Remember, this is um, pre prior to the internet. So there was no search surfing the internet. I was in a news agency and I picked up Flight International that said there was an article about Virgin Atlantic buying Airbus A340s from Northwest, which were, which were in chapter 11. And I remember, again, prior to the internet, I had to book a telephone call, an STD phone call to the UK um, at a specific time. I remember it was late at night to be in the UK. And I remember ringing the chief pilot of Virgin and say, look, I, I wrote to you many years ago and you told me I didn't have the right experience. I see you're now buying these A340 300s. I think I've got exactly the right experience to fly that aircraft. And I remember he said, OK, young man, um, I need to see you in my office. And here I was on a Monday in Sri Lanka and he said can you can you be in my office on Thursday I went yeah absolutely sir no problem <laughs> so then I had to work out how to get from Sri Lanka to London on a Thursday and this is again no staff travel things like that but I, I managed to get there I got the interview or had the interview they put me in a 747 simulator and they made me fly a circuit in that I didn't know what I was looking at because it was <laughs> 747 I did have a few friends that gave me some tips before I went in for the interview and um, there and there they offered me the job and uh, I think was Within the month, I was then out in Miami on one of the first courses to fly the A340-300. Wow. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. And that was at the start of 94. Wow, wow, wow. Jeez, I didn't realise it was that long ago they, they only got um, their, their A340s. Yeah, no, it was all jumbo jets up until... Um, Virgin Atlantic, when I joined, had eight jumbo jets. Um, and then in 1994, we got the A340s. And by the end of 94... We had eight A340s, so we had eight 
747s and A340s. So we doubled the size of the airline within a year. And wow. that's when I saw a lot of, there was a lot of military pilots coming and joining us then. I think we took 200, 200 pilots, I think, in 94. Oh, wow. It's quite a lot. It was a big drive. Massive recruitment in 94. And it kept going for, I think, about 18 months at that time. Right place, right time. Yeah, 100%. Because, you... again, being an Air Force pilot, you had to be able to leave the Air Force and join Virgin that year. Okay, so there was no kind of like handing your notice, wait 13 months. And no, then no, you, join yeah, them. exactly, yeah. Wow. That's, yeah, exactly. Right place, right time, and a bit of luck on your side there as well. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So then, did you join Virgin as a first officer or a captain? No, no, everybody joins as a first officer. And um, I was just one of the lucky guys. Like I said, we, we doubled the size of the airline within one year. So at the start of the year, I was a first officer. By the end of the year, I was a captain. Oh, That's wow, okay. In those days. That was just very lucky because I joined Virgin with, um, I think, six and a half thousand hours at that stage. And you needed 6,000 hours to be a captain. And a lot of the military guys, some of them that joined even before me, didn't have the 6,000 hours. So having 6,000, more than 6,000 hours and an Airbus type rating, right place, right time, um, enabled me to get, get straight into the left-hand seat. Wow. I've been there ever since, sitting on my laurels, as they say. <laughs> I love it. Absolutely love it. And when you switched to, from, from the 320 to the 340, was it much of a difference? I know you've got two extra engines, but was it much of a difference did it, or did it fly much, much similar? No. Um, Airbus have been amazing with this. They started out with the A320 by building this family of aircraft with the side stick and the thrust levers and everything is in the same place. And uh, I've been training a lot of our pilots flying who've been flying the A340 for, for 20 years or more onto the 350. And the setup is very, very different because it's very modern. So there's a lot of um, computer setup and there's a lot of, it's very, very different with the screens and the, um, the way you set up the, the cockpit. The, the preparation of the cockpit is very, very different. It's the same procedures, but it's, it's a different way of doing those procedures. However, it's so funny, every time I've mainly been training captains, so I've been sitting in the right-hand seat, I look across at them as, as we're pushing back with the tug and I look across and I went, now you know where you are, don't you? And they go, this is so familiar. Because as soon as we push back, it's just, it's so natural to think, right, I'll start those engines. There's my tiller, there's my thrust levers. Everything's the same. You know, an A320 pilot can fly an A350 tomorrow, right? Wow. Obviously then Airbus required them to do a course, but I've proven this because I've taken a lot of the, our A330 and A340 pilots directly into the A350 simulator and said, right, in your jump, fly a circuit. They go, what, what do you mean fly a circuit? Just fly a circuit. And they can all do it perfectly well. Yeah. Because they're pilots and they've flown, they know how to fly an Airbus. Wow. And, and, the, and the concept works. You know, any Airbus pilot can fly any Airbus. Yeah. Obviously, an, a 320 pilot would have to think about the momentum of the A350. It's a lot, lot more momentum. It's a lot bigger. It takes longer to turn. But it's, it's quite a nimble aircraft for a big aircraft. But size is the, the thing that gets them the most. And lining up on the runway, you have to go a lot deeper in your turns because it's a lot longer aircraft. But yeah. technically, it's the same airplane. To fly, wow. it's the same. Brilliant. I didn't, I didn't realize that now. And does, does the 350 take a bit of getting used to it all? It's wraparound touchscreen and stuff that it has because it's, it's got no buttons now, has it? It's, all it's very, very swept up. I'd say people regularly ask me, what, what's the difference? Say, imagine if you had like a 1990s Mercedes S-Class, right? A 1990s, something was built in the 90s and it's an S-Class, but it's the top of the range, right? It's got everything that was available in 1990, but now you've got the new 2020 model, right? <laughs> If you've got a 2020 Mercedes-Benz, like top of the range, it's got touch this and touch that. Oh, yeah. oh it doesn't have a clutch. Yeah, it's automatic. Well, how, <laughs> how, do I, how do I select drive? How do I, that's, that's different. It's going to be yeah. different. But yeah. it'll have a steering wheel and it'll have a brake and it'll have an accelerator. So, and that's, Airbus have kept those basics the same on all their aircraft. 
but it's just the, the way that you interact with the aircraft and the interface with the aircraft is different. Yeah, you know, imagine getting into a brand new Mercedes Benz that you've never never driven before and think, right, how do I connect my phone to the to the screen here? How do I do that? So yeah, you, know, you can't you can't just do that in an airplane. You can't just get in an airplane and, and work it out on the on the like you can with a car. You need to do a course, but um, that's that's how it, how similar it would be. You need to okay. do a course to to know how everything works. Yeah, I, I just thought I might, but I wasn't sure if it would be kind of a, a brain numbing thing going from the the analog normal dials to, to everything being top of the range touchscreen. No, it still flies like an airplane. It still flies like an Airbus. It's amazing. Right. And have you flown so any different... of the... Sorry, carry on. No, no, no. I was just going to say, at the moment, we're doing another thing. We haven't flown our 330s for over a year now. And so we're now flying, getting A350 pilots to go back to fly the 330 and being typical Virgin and, and super safe we're, we're requiring pilots to do an extra training and things like that. But as soon as you jump into the 330, you think, well, it's just like jumping into the old Merc. You know how it goes? It, it works. Yeah. It's perfect. Everything works. It's I amazing. saw that it's on your so Instagram, familiar. actually, uh, that you were, yeah. I think you were out flying an A330, and I wasn't sure if you could do it, because I think with, oh, I'm not sure with, with some airlines, if it's, you can only be licensed to fly one or types to fly, fly one thing. So I wasn't sure if you could jump from one Airbus to the other. That's correct. The A350... A330 rating is known as a single um, fleet, right? Oh, so okay. a, so on, on our license, it says A330 slash A350. So we only have to do a type rating, or in other words, a, a, a license proficiency check every six months in one of those types. And typical Virgin for safety, we'll do one in the 330, one six-month period, then we'll do the 350 the next six-month period. And we oscillate them all the time to make sure that all our pilots are flying both regularly or being tested in both regularly. Oh, wow, that's cool. Um, and is it with, with the 350, it's, I think it's slightly longer than the, the 330. So is there any kind of like in your mind or when, when you're flaring of watch the tail, watch the tail? Um, not so much. Again, it's the old, um, the way it's set up, it, it lands exactly the same as a 330. It flies very, very similar to the 330. And also most of our pilots have flown the 340, which again was a, um, I think within a couple of um, centimetres, the same length as the A350. The 350, and the, sorry, the 340 and the 350 are very, very similar in length. Um, and also width as well. There's more of a sweep back on the, the 350, but basically they're very, very similar size on the airport. I mean, for, for numbers, um, both aircraft are 75 meters long. Think how big that is, 75 Huge. meters long. And Olympic swimming pool's 50 meters. <laughs> so it's one and a half Olympic swimming pools and it's 64 meters wide. So taxing that around the airport, it takes a bit, wow. of, um, bit of concentration. And we have cameras for that as well. We have a, a camera on the tail of the aircraft so we can see the the wings and we also have another a camera on the belly of the aircraft so we can see the the nose wheel and in fact all our passengers can see the uh, the feed from both those cameras as well throughout the flight oh that's cool really like that oh, passengers love that yeah they can watch the takeoff and landing so so cool because i've seen it with emirates they've had a i think it's a camera on the tail of the 380 and you yeah. can have a look at that and stuff so i didn't know virgin had that and that's quite cool oh yeah you can watch it 24 7 every single seat all 366 seats or 336 seats have got the um the tail cam or the belly cam um, on your screen so you can watch it live that's so cool can you do a split Very screen cool. so you can watch them both at the same time no i don't think you can in the oh, cockpit no. we can but, but yeah, say that would but be cool on... for landing if you were sat there you get the belly cam and the tail cam yeah i think you can switch between them pretty quickly okay that's, that's all right then you won't, you won't miss out too much and yeah. do you do much time in the sim before you get released onto the the real beast of the 350 the 350 so the 350 good question 350 requires what they call a common type rating Right, so basically Airbus are saying the 330 and the 350 are a common type. They're both large, long-haul, twin-engine Airbuses, right? But they are quite different um, under the hood, I should say. So 
you know, a lot of things have been updated and advanced, things like that. So as pilots, we need to learn what those differences are and how they interact with the pilots and, and how basically, you know, when you press the button, what's it actually doing on this aircraft compared to the other one? So the course takes two weeks. It doesn't sound like long, but it's, it's long enough. So it's a, it's a week of ground school learning about the different systems, then a week um, in what they call a fixed base simulator, learning what each of the buttons do and, and, and what sequence you need to press them in to make the airplane basically fly the same as the 330. Then you'll do one simulator down at Airbus we then bring pilots back to the UK where they'll meet somebody like me and I'll take them in the simulator with my knowledge and my Virgin experience to say, okay, at Virgin, we're going to do it this way. We're going to do it that way. Remember how on the A330 we do that? Well, on the 350, we're doing much the same here, but this is how we do it. And we'll spend, say, another two simulator sessions. Simulator sessions are generally four hours long. So okay. we'll do eight hours back at London. And then we stick them in the actual aircraft and we fly across the Atlantic uh, with these pilots, uh, whether they're a first officer or a captain, with a training captain, somebody like myself, and we'll fly to New York. And what's amazing is by halfway across the Atlantic, they think, this is easy, isn't it? I go, yeah, it's the same airplane. And they go, yeah, it's really amazing. And everybody comes up with the analogy, yeah, it's just like having a brand new Mercedes. You yeah. know, it, it looks really scary. Everything's all very, very different and it's in a different place, but it just works. And it's yeah. so it's so um, ergonomic and it's, it's so natural to, to fly. So yeah, so everybody's quite comfortable after um, one sector, but we obviously give them a lot more than that. We give them quite a few just to make sure they're a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And as a training captain, do you spend, where would you spend most of your time now? Would you spend most of your time in the real thing or in the Sims? Um, 50, 50 at the moment. Okay. Um, so at the start, I was only training captains. So I think during the pandemic, when we were training captains, I was spending most of my flying in the right-hand seat training captains. And then I spent a little bit of time in left-hand seat training other training captains in the right-hand seat or first officers. And at the moment, I'm concentrating on um, the 330 simulator because I'm now training a lot of our 350 pilots back onto the 330. And it's the easiest job in the world because it's like they get in the simulator and think, I remember this. Yeah, it was only a year ago. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's just it's just reminding them what the 330 differences are. Okay. Oh, okay. I yeah, I wasn't sure if you'd be like jumbled between whether there was a, a big demand for, for sim time or a big demand for... for um, no, it's 50-50 at the moment. I mean, no... Pre-COVID, I would do maybe four sims a month. Okay. So that's four, four, six, 16 hours in the simulator a month. This month, I've got 11 simulators. I mean, that's unprecedented. That's because there's a lot of training going on at the moment. So 11 sims, that's 44 hours in the simulator. Plus, I've got, I've done some Brussels, some uh, Malpensa. Well, one Brussels, two Malpensas. I've done a New York. Um, and I'm only flying the A330 this month. But then next month, I'll be back flying the 350 again as well and training in the 350 simulator. Brilliant, absolutely. So, brilliant. so they're keeping me busy. They're getting their money's worth out of me. I was going to say, it's very, very busy, which, which brings me on to, to the next point. So I introduced you as a social media sensation, which is exactly what you are. How how did you, how, well, first of all, how did you get into this and where do you find the time to fit it in? Um, that's actually another one of these funny stories. Um, it was July, no, August, August, 19, August 2019. Uh, we got our first Airbus A350, the one you see behind me. And that photograph was taken up at um, Glasgow. So we took eight training captains, myself and another seven training captains. We flew this brand new spanking new um, $366.5 million airliner um, up to Glasgow. And we took it up and did circuits in it. Oh, basically. wow. Yeah. And we, uh, what we did is we got a lot of our other captains and first officers and we just trained them. So we gave them some, some experience, some familiarization training. And the reason we went to Glasgow is that the traffic was a lot lighter. The ATC was lovely. The people up there are amazing. Um, and we had the airspace to ourselves. So we were just flying around 
the highlands, showing people the A350 and getting them used to the different systems. And then we do a few approaches and we do some go rounds. And um, while we were up there, I remember, yeah, the week before we went up there, my daughter was, um, well, she's 17 then, and typical teenage girl, she was tapping away at her phone. She was talking to her mother and she was listening to my conversation with mum. And, and, you know, young girls, they can coordinate all these things together. And I said, what are you doing? I was a bit annoyed because it was like she was fidgeting. I said, what are you doing? She said, I'm on the gram. And I went, so what? She said, I'm on the gram, dad. <laughs> I said, the gram, just, you're going to have to explain that. She said, Instagram. I went, yeah, I've heard of that. I said, what, what is it? And show me. And she showed me those pictures of, you know, girls and fashion and handbags and shoes. And I went, well, why am I interested in that? She goes, no, 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 it's got other stuff. Look. And she typed in Airbus. And I went, oh, there's pictures of airplanes on there. She said, oh, what, what, which airplane do you fly? I said, A350. She typed in A350. And there was a picture of a brand new Virgin A350. I went, oh, that's cool. And so I, I think I posted a picture in August 19 of, of when we went up to Glasgow. And while I was up there, there was a load of um, plane spotters on the fence. And there was one particular young guy. I remember him, Kenzie, in case he's watching this. Kenzie was at the fence with his camera and he was snapping away. And I walked up to him and, and it, it reminded me of when I was that shy 12-year-old boy. I walked up to the fence and he like backed off a bit. I said, look, g'day, my name's Chris. I said, um, I saw you taking some photos. Are you putting them on Instagram? And he said, yes. I said, what's your name on Instagram? What's your handle? I didn't know what to say these days. And he said, he, he gave me his name. And I said, oh, wow, I'll, I'll look for the photos. So I went online and I saw his photos. And so then I put some photos from the cockpit. And so it was me sharing pictures from the inside of the aircraft and plane spotters from Glasgow sharing pictures from the outside of the aircraft. And I got this... Um, connection going with these guys up there and so I would then text them and say hey look we're going to do um, six circuits today we're going to do an ILS approach we're going to do a VOR approach and the best place to get the um, view would be from here and then I'll be texting him saying oh the runway's changed we're going up to zero five now and they'd move around the airport and they'd have time to get the shots and it was really good and I and that's how it started just me and the plane spotters them sending nice pictures to me I'm putting them up on Instagram to show people what the A350 looked like and that's how it all started until the pandemic began so when the pandemic began, I just had an Instagram account, which was basically to, to inspire young people to learn to fly, um, show lovely pictures of the A350 and basically show the world, this is a nice airplane. And just like I said, Instagram, the whole idea of Instagram is just to share pictures, right? So it was just to share pictures. When the pandemic happened, um, I was stuck. I lived down in Southwest France. I was stuck at home because I couldn't physically get to the UK. And so the company said, well, just stay where you are. We don't know what's going on at the moment. So just stay where you are. And that didn't sit well with me for a guy who's been working since he was 18. I didn't feel comfortable sitting at home. Yeah. So I thought, right, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? And I noticed that a lot of people were contacting me through Instagram saying, Chris, what do you think is going to happen? And I thought, well, that makes sense because I'm a, an older, experienced airline captain. I should know what's going to happen. I said, well, this will be all over in a couple of months. Right. That was what I first said. Yeah, don't worry. This is, I've seen this before. This is, you know, it's just like the, the ash cloud. It'll be over in a couple of months. We'll all be back flying. Don't worry. And then pretty much seemed like every month went by it was like it was going to be another month and then it was going to be another month and yeah we'll be flying by summer don't you worry and that's when I started up a meme which became famous throughout the world uh, with the I was holding up a sign that said um, buy buy airline tickets like you bought toilet paper yeah, and then yeah, I was I've contacted by one. Fox News and CNN News and news all around the world and Brazilian newspapers and German it was it was a proper meme that went around the world and it's still popular today um, because it, it sent a really big said a very important message it's like aviation is not good at the moment but if you go and buy a ticket because again we all assumed everybody was going to be flying last summer yeah if you go and buy an airline ticket that will give you it, it helps us because it shows that you're willing to fly and it, and it shows that that we'll fly you and, we, and the airlines want to fly you and so it worked and people were buying airline tickets right and um 
and we kept getting these bookings and we kept flying haphazardly in June and July. We could take people to LA and um, San Francisco and all sorts of different destinations. We were flying people. And then it just like, not ground to a halt, but it got less and less passengers as more restrictions came throughout the world. But the memes still worked and people were still keen to book because again, here we are a, a year on every month. And you'll remember this, Mikey, a year, you know, March last year, we thought, ah, oh, we'll be flying, but in April, yeah, yeah. April, we'll be flying in May, May, we'll be flying in June, we'll be flying in July. And it just, and, and it's amazing to think, here we are again, um, the government's just in the UK have just announced today what things are going to be happening and how we're going to come out of this. And I've noticed just before we started talking that um, they haven't mentioned aviation. So that's a bit sad. Yeah. Um, and we've got to find a way out of this. You know, yeah, whether, it, whether it be vaccination passports or things like that, we have to find a way out because people need to travel. Yeah. And sorry, I get sidetracked, right? Sidetracked. So how did it start with Instagram? So I put that meme on there and then I started posting regular um, videos and pictures. And then before I knew it, there was a guy called Richard Branson. He lives in the Caribbean. Oh, he, yeah. saw me on Insta he saw me on Instagram and contacted the company and said, why is Captain Chris not flying? And they said, well, he lives in France. He can't get here. And they contacted me, said, can you get to the UK? And I said, yes, I can now, because um, things have changed. So I managed to get back to the UK. And then from June, I was flying flat out. And I was just training and training and training flat out since June and flying. And I was um, basically taking as many photos as I can, sending as many positive messages. And I set up during that period between um, March and, say, June, I set up my Instagram account, not as a personal account, but as a business account for three main goals. And my main goals are one promote Virgin Atlantic, promote Virgin Atlantic, promote Virgin Atlantic. Because without Virgin Atlantic, I don't have a job and my colleagues don't have jobs. And that's the most important thing for us to keep that airline flying and to keep it in the public eye. And there was quite a lot of negative press at that time as well. And yeah. so I was contradicting all that press by saying, no, don't believe what you read in the media. You know, Richard Branson is a fantastic guy, you know, because there was all sorts of really negative stuff. And, and, and again, I learned a lot about the media. They'll just print anything that will oh, sell yeah. newspapers or sell media. It's all and really, a lot of it was it? just absolute rubbish. And what I did find as well is that people tend to not trust corporations. They tend to trust people. And yeah. so people were trusting what I was saying. And I thought, okay, I've got to make sure what I'm saying is, is honest. And so I've treated it like a business. So I promoted Virgin Atlantic. Two, I encourage people to, to buy airline tickets with that meme. And I kept encouraging, like, buy a ticket. And every time Virgin had a sale on, so look, we've got another sale on now. You can get some cheap tickets here. You can get cheap tickets there. And the good thing is that Virgin have honored all these tickets now. And they've continually rolled them over and said, look, we're sorry that you couldn't fly in June, but you can fly in August. We're sorry you can't fly in August. You can now fly in September. And that's gone on. And I, I feel sorry for every one of those people that bought those tickets. But at the same time, you know, those people still have tickets. And, and thank you so much for buying those tickets because it's supporting the airline industry and we want to take you flying yeah i'm telling you i want to take you flying on that holiday wherever it is barbados san francisco la wherever you want to go i want to take you there because that's what we all want to do we want to get flying and yourself mike you want to come back and serve those passengers and, and get them where they want to go yeah, and so 100%. i just kept pushing it like that so, but there was a third part to my 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 three part my three prong business plan was to support my colleagues. And it's people like you, Mikey, not just Virgin Atlantic colleagues, because there was a lot of my colleagues that were like me grounded and they don't know what's gonna happen. And through no fault of their own, all our 747 pilots, they were grounded because they flew a 747 and we didn't need to fly 747s anymore. All our A340 pilots that were, were even on an A350 course when this happened, they were all grounded. 330s, we, we shelved our 330s for a while. And so all the pilots flying the 330s, they were shelved at the same time. Luckily, they've been on furlough, but again, we don't know what's happening from now. It's, it's, yeah. it's, 
I don't like to say the word bleak, but at the moment today, we're thinking, where are we going with this? You know, it's been a year now. We need to get people back flying. There needs to be something done. And I think drastic action will have to be taken by the airlines to get the government to turn around and say, look, just let people fly. Let them go. Give, make, get some rules. Use the science. Make sure it's completely 100% safe. I mean, I've never felt safer on an airliner. I've had um, numerous PCR tests. And, um, yeah, I, I haven't, I'm COVID zero every single time. I, I commute from France. I go through some of the busiest airports in the world. And I will tell you that flying is the safest way to try. I get anxious going to the supermarket. That's where you're going to pick up COVID. Well, that's exactly it. Yeah, I you... got COVID in, oh, I think it was end of October, start of November time. But I was flying as, as well. But I didn't get yeah. COVID flying. I got it from popping to the supermarket. But no. Yeah, you're not, not anxious on an airplane because everybody's taking precautions. Everybody's safe. Yeah. 100% you're wearing your mask and everyone's everyone's doing as we're told and that's that's the thing we need to we, I think aviation needs to get across to the government and to any everyone that that's asking us to, to close the borders and, and stop flying yeah the air conditioning systems on these model airlines it's changed the air every two minutes and it's not it's not mountain air it's higher than mountain air it's like the freshest air you can ever get and it's going through HEPA filtration systems it's coming down from overhead you it's taking it so even if the guy beside you coughs you're not going to get his cough yeah. yeah, you're in the safest environment there is with regards to fresh air. Yeah, 100%. so the government needs to understand this that it's safe to travel. When you get to your destination, that's a different thing, but it's safe to travel. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Like you set up a system of testing. Um, yeah, safe. that's it, and and that's 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 come in um, as well. The vaccine process, especially in the UK now, I think one thing that's been done really well is the vaccine process. And we're now looking at. I think I read in the newspaper a couple of days ago. We're now looking at uh, every adult in the UK being offered the vaccine two months uh, earlier than than they were meant to. Absolutely. And by April, I read another thing that we could even have herd immunity by April as well, which is another thing before everybody's even vaccinated. Even, even so, better. We'd, we'd be back, back, back to normal, I, I suppose, and that. And then yeah. I think the government announced today that they they want uh, all kind of contact restrictions lifted by the twenty first of June, which would be brilliant. And hopefully, we'll all be back to normal. And be this time next year, we'll all be sat down laughing about it, going, "Do you remember that time we weren't flying? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hugging and kissing. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Remember those things. <laughs> <laughs> back in those times, where you could sit in a restaurant beside your mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, Chris, I have to say, you've you've come a long way from, from from a guy that just started this instagram account um you, you've come a long way you've, you've got verified in instagram uh, which is quite a quite a big thing really and some of your videos you do are, are absolutely amazing i love watching your your time lapses and stuff like that one thing that one of the ones that really blew me away was you, you were sat in the sim and your your camera was like on a 360 turn and yeah it was you sat in every in single seat in that social and, distancing it was brilliant absolutely brilliant so how how did you learn how to do all this really quickly um, yeah, see, I'm giving away my tricks though now. See, I'm really lucky. I've got two amazing children, right? My daughter knows all about Instagram, right? So she would be saying, no, you can't post that. You've got to post that and make sure you talk about this and make sure. And so she's been almost like my content manager. And, um, you know, and, and, and so she was, I mean, obviously I put up a lot of stuff on my own. She doesn't look at every single thing that goes on there, but every now and then she go, yeah, I don't like the song you put with that one. I go, yeah, it wasn't as good. Was, you know, so, so the other, my other secret um, weapon is my son. My son is a, um, is doing a, a course to become a film director at Ealing Studios in London. Oh, wow. So he's, he's into film and he all know, knows about special effects. He's reluctant to help me because typical son, father, son thing is like, oh, work it out yourself, old man. Yeah. So, um, he will he will help me and he's shown me how to do the ones where I have multiple versions of me and things like that. So so he helps me and he also is his music. Every time I do a reel, 
I say, what goes well with this? And he'll go, ah, put this track here, put that track there. So he's, he's going a long way with film because he's, he understands it and he's very good with that. So yeah, I've got two secret weapons that help me, my son <laughs> and my it. daughter. And it's working for you as well, obviously, because you're, you're growing and growing and growing. And um, was it 52,000 followers at the moment on Instagram? 64. 64 has gone up, geez. <laughs> be 65 today. Wow, congratulations. Yeah. No, it just keeps going up. It's great. And, and I put that down to because I think I'm, I'm, I'm doing the right thing. Like I said, my number one goal is I will promote Virgin Atlantic and all aviation. You know, so I, you know, I'm talking to somebody from British Airways. I want British Airways to do well. I want British Airways to succeed. Right. Everybody talks about this rivalry between British Airways and Virgin. Yeah, at the management level there is. But from the workers level, from you and I, we're all the same people. We love aviation. We love what we do. We love taking people away to where they want to go, right, to visit their family, to go for business meetings or just on, go on a nice holiday. And we all need a holiday right now. So as, as people in the airline industry, we love what we do. So I want to support all the people in that industry. And I can do that through Instagram. I also want to promote people to buy tickets and say, look, buy tickets, buy tickets <laughs> in aviation, buy, buy, buy tickets to keep our jets flying. And but the most important one is right now, because it's, it's really hitting home after a year now, is to support all my colleagues that are sitting at home right now who may be watching this to say, look, I know what it's like. I've been where you are. I've never been in this situation as bad as it is right now. But I can tell you that there is light at the end of this tunnel. Um, I hate to use the expression it's character building because that was always told to me that, you know, don't worry, it's character building. Um, I don't yeah. need any more character and I'm sure you don't either, but you will come out of this and it will be better after this um, because, you know, having lived through something like this and people have lived through a lot more in generations before us, but to live through something like this, it'll, it'll make us all a bit stronger. It'll also make us appreciate each other a little bit more as well. And I think I've seen some nice things come out of Instagram and, and out of, you know, communication. And look what we're doing right now, Mikey. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And when, when would a virgin captain speak to a, to a BA steward? Eh? When? <laughs> So it's never happened before. Yeah. Any day of the week, mate. Because <laughs> yeah. what I think is as well, is like we wear different uniforms. Uh, we, do, we do slightly different jobs, but there is that quite uniqueness of we're in a, a role and a job position that's kind of hard to explain to anybody else. And when things go wrong in the world, this is usually the first industry to, 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 for to go wrong in. Yes. Um, so I think it's really good about what you're doing, about promoting it all and everything like that, because we might we might not be in the same boat, but we are in the same storm. Oh, nice. You must have thought of that beforehand. That's a good I one. That, I yeah. like that. That's good. <laughs> I'm going to use that. Yeah, do, do. Um, but yeah, 100%. That's what I love about what you do. And I love that you're pushing everything on, on Instagram. That meme, I came across that meme when, when it first went went mad before I started following yourself and all that. And it was it was brilliant. And I thought, do you know what? That That's quite funny because there was a big thing over here about the toilet papers running out in Sainsbury's and stuff yeah, like that so across funny. the road. And then to see you stood up and, and all my mates sharing this meme of, of yourself with this cardboard sign that says that buy, buy plane tickets like you bought um, toilet rolls. And I think that that it, it, it it's quite light humoured, but it also sends a message home to... It's a very serious message. Yeah, yeah, 100%. It hits it home to, to, to we, we need you to do this as well because it's, we, you want to go away as well, but it's, it's, our, it's our livelihoods. Yeah. Absolutely, 100%, Mikey. And that I, I really do take my hat off. And I do love what you're doing on, on Instagram and, and everything like that. And I take it that the company is very supportive of you doing all this stuff as well. Absolutely, 100%. Otherwise, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. No, they're really supportive because they can see what I've done. I'm supporting the airline, number one, all the time. And um, 
like I said, you know, people trust people. Yeah, and that's what we've learned through this. You know, a lot of big corporations are struggling right now because people go, oh, yeah, but the corporation said this and this company said that. We people distrust governments and things like that. But people trust people. And if you have integrity, which is what I'm selling on Instagram, I'm selling Captain Chris. I'm selling the integrity. It's not about my surname. It's about Captain Chris. I'm a senior Virgin Atlantic airline captain very experienced airline captain, and I'm selling Virgin Atlantic to the public and saying, please come and buy tickets, fly with us, because we need we need you to fly with us. We need your confidence. And once we get your confidence to come flying back again, everybody, all of my colleagues that are sitting on the ground right now can fly again and, and join you and I and everybody else in the skies again. Yeah, 100%. And, I love, and what I love as well is, is that everything you've spoken to me about so far um, has been about perseverance and pushing on. And I think, especially at this, I, I don't want to use dark, dark hour, but I think at this this dark hour that that's there, everyone needs to kind of persevere and push on to, to get where they want. And you might get set back at this moment of time, but we, we need to we need to push on because, like you said, there's going to be it's going to be luck around the corner for 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 those people. Like I said at the start, anything worthwhile isn't easy, and and, and an aviation career is a worthwhile career, and it will come back, and we'll all get flying again, and. Um, It'll come back. You know, it has been a lot longer than any single person on this planet expected, but um, it will come back. Yeah. And like I said, it'll be, it'll be much better when it does. And we'll really, really love our jobs. Yeah, exactly. And we'll be, we'll be ready for it. And they're, they're ready, ready to take everyone on, on holidays and stuff, which is, which is fantastic. Um, so, Chris, I don't know if you, if you, if you saw recently, um, talk, talk, going, going away from the COVID situation, and all, talking about... Um, an incident happened uh, with, with, I think it was a United uh, 777 quite recently. Oh, the 777, yeah, that was, that um, was yesterday it. or the day before, Sunday, yeah. Uh, where yeah. it had an engine failure, but it, quite catastrophic. What, what are your thoughts on that? That was quite, uh, you don't hear much about stuff like that happening. No, it doesn't happen. And, and it's interesting, um, that incident, because it's something that every single airline pilot on the planet practices in the simulator every six months. Every time we go in the simulator, we, we give them a situation where the engine um, fails like that and it catches fire. And every single pilot in the world, I haven't heard any um, reports from the pilots that flew that airplane, but I guarantee they would have said, well, it probably felt like it just felt like the sim. I remember when um, Captain Sullenberger landed in the Hudson, he said it felt like the sim. You know, pilots are trained to, to the um, extreme that when something terrible like that happens to them, it's just routine. They yeah. would have gone, OK, bang, one of the engines has gone. All right, shut down the engine, turn off the fuel and uh, we'll just make a circuit and land. Um, on the remaining engine and it wouldn't have been it would have been very routine yes they would have had a bit of um, tension a bit of stress but that's normal because it's a, it's a real event and also in the simulator it feels like a real event but no more than they would have had in the simulator and in fact they probably would have done a bit even better job because in real life it's it's easier in real life in fact in the simulator we always do it in a in a storm at night when it's raining and it's you can't see out the window so it's the IMC, IMC as we call so on instruments whereas they had a lovely day in Denver I think it was a lovely day or look, the weather looked reasonably good so they had, had lots of things going for them. Yes, the, the engine, why did it um, break up? I don't know what it is. Um, the pictures that we all saw on the internet with the flames coming around from the, uh, it looked like the turbine section of the aircraft. Obviously, once they shut down the engine, there's still going to be some residual engine, uh, sorry, a residual fuel in that area of the engine. So that's just that burning off. After a while, that would have burnt off. And uh, we didn't see what happened after that video. But then they would have landed with that engine, just what left of it hanging on the engine, hanging on the wing, and they would have flown in on the remaining engine which is obviously working fine. And people have asked me, what happens if both engines fail? One, it's the, the, the chances of one engine failing is like one in a million or one in two million or 14 million, or it's like yeah. winning the lottery or losing the lottery. But for two of them to go, okay, if they did go, aircraft still can um, glide, right? 
all airliners are just big gliders. Um, I mean, we all know a triple seven British Airways triple seven years ago that that had a problem with the both engines. That, that's glided, and everybody got off that aircraft as well, didn't they? Yeah, they so did. Uh, air, they aircraft did. will still fly without the engines running. I've, I've had a, I've had engine problems myself uh, I've, as, a, as a PPL holder, and um, I found I found that out. Uh, we we she the, the engine stopped, and then it started again, then it stopped. So it's like a partial engine failure, really, um, to the point where it kicked back in, but it sat on idle. So when I moved the throttle, nothing actually happened. Okay. Um, but I, f- I found that out of like, and you, you know, you're like you said, you practice your training all that. Your instructor, you'd be on the climb out. Your instructor will pull the power on you and say, right, you've just had an engine failure. What are you going to do? And you get the nose on. You, you like, like you said, you, you just put the nose down, you, you turn it into a big glider, really, or a small glider. Absolutely. depends on what you're flying. Yeah, yeah. And it might scare some people here, but some of the things we push our pilots to, I remember a few years ago, we used to get the guys flying in towards Sydney on the A340 in the simulator. This is in the simulator. <laughs> so in the simulator. And as an instructor, I'd, I'd fail all four engines. So oh, off you go. And every single one of them could glide into Sydney Airport. Every single one of them had the, the ability, the experience and the knowledge um, to be able to put it on the ground with no engines running. And they'd start right. the APU up and they'd get the gear down manually and they'd do all those great things you know, in, in like three or four minutes and they'd get it on the ground, no problem whatsoever. One of our, uh, I do a lot of competition flying uh, for microlights, and one of our tasks is just climb up to uh, a thousand feet above the airfield and then um, hit the mag switches, knock the engine off, and then glide it back down into a spot landing yep. box. Um, and it really, really hones your skills, and it, it's fantastic. And everyone says, Oh, is it not scary? It's quite peaceful when you're just sat there with, with no noise and just wind rushing past. Um, it's very, very peaceful. Yeah, I did a similar thing, but it wasn't um, expected. I, did, I took some parachutists up once to about, I think it was about five or six thousand feet. And as they jumped out, one of them leant forward, turned the engine off, and took the key with him. No so way! That happened to me. Yeah, I was 19 <laughs> years old. I learned very quickly how to glide an aeroplane and land it. That's very cheeky, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is Australia, remember? Back I was going to say, yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> and. Chris, so you've obviously flown, talking about that, you took a little parachute, it's up, you've flown the A350, you've flown a couple of Fokkers. What has been the coolest airplane or your favourite airplane that you have flown? It's, it's an easy one. The A350 is my favourite because it's the latest, it's the best, it's the newest. But having not flown the A350, I would have said the A340-600 because it was just a massive, big, four-engine, world-class, you know, intercontinental airline that could fly for 20 hours, it could take you anywhere on the planet. It was just and and having four big Rolls Royce engines in your hand and and just and and memories of that you know flying into Hong Kong and on the A three forty three hundred flying into Kai Tak Airport with my oh, dad and one wow. of my brothers on the jump seat stuff like that was really cool so yeah being a long, young captain flying a four engine jet was pretty cool but obviously you know the three fifty nothing beats the three fifty now but the three forty is I, I spent all my thirties and my forties flying the A three forty so that's the one that's dearest to my heart. Wow, that's very very cool. Because I've I've seen the three forties quite a few times, and they, they just look big and monstrous, as to say. So I'd, uh, taking one of them into Kaitaka, I'm sure must have been must have been very very fun. Very very cool, great fun. And what was your? Have you got a favourite moment that stands out in all of your career? I think it was that one going into Kaitak with my dad and one of my brothers, both on the jump seats in the cockpit in the days when people could visit the cockpit flying into Kaitak on a, a stormy afternoon in a rainstorm, turning around the corner. I got the autopilot out, got the auto thrust out. I'm banking around. I look around at my dad. I said, how cool is this, dad? <laughs> that's cool. That, that's very cool. You don't get much cooler than that. Like, yeah, no, that's cool. That's Tom cool. Cruise, isn't it? And then we also used to have all the celebrities up in the cockpit. I remember those days. They'd regularly come up in the cockpit. All, all sorts of celebrities would regularly visit. 
That's brilliant. Because I remember when jo- joining um, the airline industry and all that, I didn't realise you could actually sit on uh, jump seats and stuff like that. So one of the coolest things I've ever done is sat on a jump seat in, and, the, cockpit, uh, yeah. in the cockpit for takeoff and landing, which was, which was really, really cool. Yeah, never take it for granted. And that's what I'm saying. Once you come back flying, there'll be a lot of cabin crew. Because I remember just before COVID started, I remember I, I said to some of the cabin crew, oh, who wants to sit up for takeoff? They went, no, oh, I'll do that on my next trip. And they didn't get another trip after that's that. That's it. That's it. And I was only talking to my other half the other day. And like, even, even outside of aviation, it's like talking about, oh, should we go to London? We do this. And they're like, nah, we'll, we'll give it a miss. And kind of mi- kind of messed up there because we did, well, who, who's seen this coming? But we, we kind of messed up there. And it's a fact of, I don't think we're going to turn down opportunities again of, uh, to go out. Yeah, and no, absolutely. The more time we can spend out of the apartment, the better, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. Thank you so much for talking to me. You're very welcome. That's no, uh, great talking to you, Mike. You, you do this really well. Thank you very you, much. You put somebody these. I was going to say, it, it, the, the, the um, guest also helps me there. So uh, thank you so much. And if any of my listeners do want to follow Chris, it's Captain Chris on a uh, on Instagram. And uh, do check out some of his really, really, really cool stuff. Uh, that's there about the A350 and, and some of your flying adventures. Excellent. Thank Chris, you very much, Mikey. Thank you very much. Great speaking to you. And, and good you. luck, pal. Good luck. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye-bye.